The book of Philippians, it's a little book, four chapters, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians for a little while. We're starting a brand new series this morning uh, on the book of Philippians, and uh, it's a great book. It's four, only four chapters long, and you know, sometimes we get overwhelmed with the whole Bible. You know, you know where do I start, and you know, and, and we read bits and pieces here, but I want to encourage you to, you know, if it's once a week, just read through the book of Philippians while we're doing this study. Just read through four chapters. I mean, read one a day, you know, uh, for, uh, for the next few weeks. And as you read it, you'll become much more familiar. You'll become, in fact, you'll become more familiar with the book, but you'll become more familiar with some verses in the book. And you'll find yourself having conversation with people and you'll start referring to a chapter or a verse in the book of Philippians. Because the more that you chew on the word, and the more focused you get on the Word, the more the Word gets into your spirit. And the more the Word gets into your spirit, the more the Word is going to start coming out of your spirit. Amen? You know, in the body of Christ, our, you know, even in churches, you know, our, our, our morality, our standards and all that is going down. You know why I think that's so? Because we don't get in the Word. We don't spend time in the Word of God. And it's the standard. It's kind of like, you ever tried to cut one foot pieces of rope without a measuring stick? How many of you know you'll never do it? You'll cut six inches, eight inches, 13 inches. You know, every once in a while you get one foot. And sometimes we're missing the standards of what God wants us because we're not measuring it by the standard of God's word. And we're missing the mark. Amen. Are y'all with me? And the worst part about it is we're not receiving and experiencing the blessings that God has for us. Amen. Come on, you know, there's a lot of fads in the world, things that come in and go out. You know, bell-bottom jeans comes in and goes out. But there's one thing that's not a fad, brothers and sisters, and it's the standard of the Word of God. Amen. It will never go out. It will always be in. Amen. And so let's look at the book of Philippians today. And I want to just uh, take some time today to, as we just kind of just kick it off, uh, before we get into the content of the book, I want to just give you a backdrop of the book of Philippians so that we can better understand the content of what's in the book of Philippians. Is that all right? So I want to begin looking at uh, just an introduction to the letter of Philippians. And I want to begin looking at who wrote and to whom the book of Philippians was written. To find the answer, we simply look at the first verse of the book of Philippians. First verse. Let's read it. First two verses in Philippians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and the deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now, the opening verse tells us who the author of the book is. And although Paul includes Timothy in his greeting, we know that the Apostle Paul is writing the book. As you study the book and as you look at it, the Apostle Paul, who was miraculously saved on the road to Damascus, the guy that was persecuting Christians that got saved, his life was totally turned around, now he's writing to the church to encourage the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was a changed man. Amen? Now, to whom it was written in verse 1b, it says, he said, I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi 
who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and the deacons. Now, Philippians is what is called a Pauline epistle, which means he's the author. It's a Pauline epistle written to the church and the elders and the deacons who were at Philippi, thus the book of Philippians. But I want you to notice he wasn't just writing to the believers that were in Philippi. He was also writing to the elders and the deacons. He was writing to the elders and the deacons, and I was reading that. You know, I just began to think about that for a moment. And one of the obvious insights you pick up as you read the New Testament is the fact that the New Testament church was set up with a definite governmental structure. It wasn't haphazardly put on the globe. There's a structure, just like your body has a skeletal structure that holds your body together. God has a governmental structure that he has placed within the body of Christ to hold it together. And I think a lot of times people that are church going people don't understand what's going on. And they don't understand how this thing functions that God has established called his church. But the Lord placed elders in every region to bring about proper accountability, oversight, and order into the local church. The elders are simply spiritually mature church overseers. Spiritually mature church overseers. And then he says deacons. Those are simply proven servants who serve faithfully in the church. And so the purpose of the elders and the deacons that God has placed in the body of Christ was to maintain biblical doctrine, proper church order, a discipline and unity into the body of Christ. Did you know that? That God put officers in the church. And there was a purpose of him putting officers in the church. The Lord placed these elders and deacons in every church, in every region, to bring about church unity, order, and success. You know why? Because proper biblical structure brings about proper church health and growth. If you don't have a proper structure in your body, I mean, it doesn't just think about your body. If we didn't have a structure, we'd be some flabs of flesh all over the place. Right. We have to have a structure to be able to function. And God has placed a structure within the body of Christ. Now, I I felt like I needed to talk about that. Especially, I've just went through uh, having the opportunity to walk with a church that was going through some some issues in their church, largely as a result of not having proper structure and order. And I believe that family life, family life church has personally benefited from having proper structure, governmental structure. When Brother Francis founded the church, he was, he was, he just, God said go, he went, and next thing he knew, he had a church, and what am I gonna do? And, and so he got some elders, and, and he started out, and, and because he had some accountability, he had some wise men, some, some people to walk with him, he was able to establish a healthy church, which I am eternally grateful for the fact that Brother Francis established a healthy church in Lafayette. Amen. Amen. Because I am a life that has been changed as a result of that fact. Amen? And so I just want to mention, family life has a structure here. 
Number one, we're guided by a pastoral team that does the day-to-day serving of the congregation. But we also are protected by trustees. The trustees who help oversee the, the physical facilities as well as the management of the budget and the finances of the church. I can't just do whatever I want. And those trustees, Francis Borg, here's one right here, uh, in the, Brad Sons, Gary Sinnott, I don't, I don't know if Gary's here, Gerald Broussard and David Meir. Those are the five guys that serve as trustees in the church. And I meet with those guys on a regular basis and they, they see the budget and they give me permission and they give me oversight. They help me to process how we deal financially with this church. How many of you are grateful for that? That keeps me from buying a camp in Cocoa Tree and a house in Florida on, on Destin. Amen. It's good for you and it's good for me. It's good for the local church. Governmental structure. But then we have, we're strengthened by overseers. Overseers are presbyters, are elders, or sometimes they called bishops. And the word bishop means overseer. Elder means overseer. Those words many times can be interchanged. But 1 Timothy 3.1 in the Amplified, the saying is true and irrefutable. If any man eagerly seeks the office of bishop, superintendent, overseer, he desires an excellent task. Now, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, it'll give you some qualifications to being able to function in that office. But this church has three presbyters, overseers, who serve at Family Life. Brother Francis being the main voice, the founding pastor, is an overseer. And although Brother Francis has not had to physically pastor this church in 10 or 11, well, 11 or 12 years, I forget now, but he has, he still has a strong voice in this church. In fact, he can fire me. See why I'm so nice to him every time I'm around him? (laughs) But he's the founding pastor and he has the main voice. But so does Brother Larry Myers with Mexico Ministries. Brother Jim Dornell, whose son was here last Sunday. Those three guys are overseers. All three of these elders are presbyters here at Family Life are an important layer in this church. So if I start teaching something that's way out of bounds doctrinally, And either the board of trustees or some of you call Brother Francis and say, did you hear what Todd's teaching? And if it's not biblically correct, they have a let's meet with Jesus meeting. Amen. Are y'all with me out there? I'm hoping I'm not boring you, but I'm wanting you. You got to learn this as a as a believer in the body of Christ. And so you are protected as a church. If I hit my head and forget which way is north, Brother Francis and these guys are going to come in and establish north for this church. And I can't tell you what great value that has been when I've had to make big decisions to be able to get the input and the advice and the counsel of these guys to help me keep my doctrine straight, to keep my vision straight, and to keep the church straight. Amen? And so Paul, when he writes to the book of Philippians, he writes to the believers, but he also writes to the elders, and he also writes to the deacons. Proper biblical structure brings about church health and church growth. Amen? Now, where was Paul writing this letter? This is really important. 
We know from history that Paul was writing this letter not from an ivory tower, not from a lazy boy in his living room, but he was writing from prison. The Bible says in first in Philippians chapter one, verse seven. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in, in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of God or of the good news. Paul spent much time in prison in Rome as a result of preaching the gospel. He would preach the gospel and he received much adversity, much persecution, much resistance, which caused him to end up in jail because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. And so he's sitting in jail and he, st- he gets out a, a, a legal pad and he starts writing a letter to the church. Obviously, it wasn't a legal pad, but you know what I'm saying. So Paul is not writing this letter from comfort. He's writing this letter from suffering. This is important for us to know. That whatever comes out his mouth as he pins the words in the book of Philippians, you got to know the context of what he's saying. You got to know the the heart from which he's saying it in. Because it causes the words to carry a whole lot more weight. Amen? The book of Philippians is only one of four prison epistles that Paul wrote while he was in jail in Rome. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon are the other three. But now let's look at when the church of Philippi began. This is one of the only, one of the churches that you can actually go back and you can see how this church came about. And it's pretty interesting. If you go back now to Acts chapter 16, I want to take a little sidetrack here and I want you to see how the book of Acts began. It's how it, how it was birthed. If you read Acts chapter 13 to 19, you can read about the story of Paul's three missionary journeys. Like, for instance, say he was here and and he decided he wanted to go encourage some churches or uh, start some churches. He would go out on a journey and he would end up coming back to home base and he would report on what happened. He did that three times. Sometimes he was going to establish a church. Sometimes he was going to check on the church, encourage the church, set the church in order. That was his job. That's what he did. And so Acts 13 through 19, if you'll read those chapters, you'll see Paul's missionary journeys right there. And you'll see when Paul, uh, one day he was on a journey and he received a vision. And this man was standing in Macedonia and calling him over, hey, come over here and preach the gospel to us. He hadn't been there yet. Gospel hadn't gone there yet. And Paul receives this vision that you need to come preach the gospel over here. How many of you know it's good to get direction from the Lord? Amen. And so I want you to see in Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. So Paul and Silas traveled throughout or through the area of uh, Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the providence of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of, of, of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bethania, but again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. And that night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia, northern Greece, was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once. How many of you know, it's good to not delay your obedience. They went to Macedonia at once, having concluded 
that God was calling us to preach the good news there. When we boarded, or, or we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. Now, I could take some time to just talk about the fact that right here in verse 12, Philippi was a major city, and it was, it was a, a, a key city, and it was in the district of Macedonia, and it had become a Roman colony. And Paul goes to Macedonia, to Philippi, and the Bible says he stays there several days. And so as a result of following this vision of the Lord, he ends up there and he begins to preach the, the gospel. And as a result of preaching the gospel, people got saved and there the church of Philippi gets birth. In fact, as you, as you read on a little bit further, the, the, uh, you, you begin to see how it begins to establish. The first convert there was Lydia. And as you read, um, in Acts 16, 13, on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city of the riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened up her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. How many of you know the Lord has to open up your heart for you to become a Christian? Amen. And that's what we're believing, that as Nick and Emily go to Boise, that the Lord is already opening up the hearts of people that are going to be ready to receive the gospel as they share it with them. Amen. Amen. Now listen, verse 15. She was, she was baptized along with other members of her household. And she asked us to be her guest. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. She kept persuading, come to my house. But as you see, Lydia was converted. And then she was baptized. See, that's where we get the principle. That's where we get the picture. If you're a Christian, you need to be water baptized. Why do we have baptisms every quarter? So that if you become a believer in the last quarter, you need to get baptized like Lydia did. Amen. And she said, if you perceive that I'm a true convert, you know what Lydia did? She jumped in the baptismal pool in the front of God and all her friends and her family and everybody who was even against Christianity. She said, I don't care what happens. I am obeying the Lord. She got baptized. So a Lydia not only Lydia, along with her household, became the first converts in the church of Philippi. And as you keep reading, this thing gets very interesting. In verse 16, you see it start to explode. Well, verse 16, one day see, we were going down to the place of prayer. We met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell us how to be saved. She's saying, this is the guy, listen to him. It seems like all is fine. Verse 18, this went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and he said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. How about that? And instantly it left her. 
It seemed like she was promoting the way, but all the time as a deceiving spirit that was operating. Paul, using the sermon, recognized it, took authority over it, cast it out in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 19, her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged him before the authorities in the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. Hey, listen, wouldn't it be great if Nick and Emily went to Boise and the whole city was in an uproar because of them preaching the gospel there? Amen. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great for Lafayette to be in an uproar because of so many believers making a splash in town? Verse 21, they're teaching Customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them stripped, beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake. The prison was shaken at its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Amen. This is Philippi. This is the church getting birthed. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and wash their wounds. This is the warden, the jailer. He's taking care of them now. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately, there we go again, baptized. He brought them into his house, set, set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. There you have it, my brothers and sisters. There's the church of Philippi. It started with one lady and it quickly blossomed into a fledging church. That's where the history. Isn't that great to be able to look back and see that? The church of Philippi was birthed out of much persecution and hostility and adversity. It was birthed because of the Apostle Paul's willingness to sacrifice to obey and persevere through much adversity. It wasn't like they just went hang a sign and there the church began. No, it was because of the perseverance, the tenacity of the Apostle Paul who refused to give up or give in, but continued to follow the calling and the will of God until the kingdom of God began to get established. What was Paul's purpose now? Now that this church is established, what is this purpose of writing this letter back to the church of Philippi? Why is he writing them? The purpose of Paul's letter to the Philippians, I believe there were two reasons. Number one, first of all, Paul was writing a thank you note to the Philippians. It was a thank you note. In Philippians 1 and 3, it says, every time I think of you, this is what Paul said, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. 
So clearly Paul is writing a thank you note to the believers who are the church of Philippi. And the reason is he's thanking the Philippians for their financial support. For their support of his ministry as a missionary. Philippians 4.15 says, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first bought, brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. Another, another ch- no other church did this. Verse 16, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. That moment, at the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent with me with Epaphroditus. That's a word. And they are sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from His glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. So Paul's writing the book of, or writing the Philippian church because they've been so generous in helping him spread the gospel. The Philippians that held, uh, helped Paul financially in three different occasions. The church helped him when he was ministering to Thessalonica. Verse 16, when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. When he was in jail, they helped him. Verse 10, how I praise the Lord that you, you're con- you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help. The church also helped him when he was spreading the gospel in Corinth. Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and listen to what he tells them. 2 Corinthians eleven eight. I robbed other churches by accepting, by accepting their... I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. And when I was with you, I didn't have enough to live on. I did, I did not become a financial burden on anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia. That's Philippi. Brought me all that I needed. So the Philippian church was supporting the missionary. The bottom line is this. When you look at the book of Philippians, you know that... The, the church in Philippi was a very generous church. And Paul is, Paul is recognizing that. And he's thanking them. The church of Philippi was a very missions-minded church. Do you see that? That Paul would not have been able to bring the gospel to Corinth had it not been for their generosity and other people's generosity. Now, why do I say all that? I say that because we as a church, we have the opportunity to be selfish and just spend every last dollar we have right here on, on, on us and, and us three and no more. Or we can be generous and continue to support missionaries and missions across the world and help spread the gospel to the, glo- to the far ends of the globe. Amen. And I'm here to report to you, to you that as a church, you are very generous people. And I could say thank you to you because you are emissions-minded people. Amen. So Paul is writing to thank them. And he reminds them that the same God that provides for me is the God that's going to provide for you. Because he says in verse 19, and my God, in the context of thanking them for their generosity, and my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know what the Apostle Paul knew? That God blesses the generous. God blesses generosity. 
God blesses those who has a vision and a heart for the kingdom of God. Amen. That's why he could say, and my God shall supply you Philippians who so generous and so missions and vision kingdom minded. My God is going to supply everything you need. Amen. Isn't that a word of encouragement? Another reason Paul was writing the Philippian church was number two. Paul was also writing a note of encouragement to the Philippians. He was writing a note of encouragement. The key verse of Philippians is Philippians chapter four and verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. In case you didn't get it the first time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Amen. You know what rejoice means? It means to be cheerful. It means to be happy. It means to be glad. It means to smile. Amen. Paul encourages the Philippians by reminding them to always be cheerful, be happy, and be full of joy. Amen. The theme of the whole book of Philippians is joy. It's joy. Six times in four chapters, Paul uses the word joy. Six times in four chapters, he uses the word rejoice, which really means joy. Twelve times in four chapters. If you outline the book of Philippians, you could outline it like this. Chapter one, joy in suffering. Chapter two, joy in serving. Chapter three, joy in believing. Chapter four, joy in giving. Joy summarizes the entire book of Philippians. Joy. That's the theme. The one thing that Paul wants to encourage the Philippian church with is joy. Outrageous, contagious joy. Can I encourage the church at Family Life? Can I encourage the believers who are at Family Life in Acadiana? What you need, my brothers and sisters, is outrageous, contagious joy. Come on, you need joy. Amen. Are y'all with me? You need joy. Come on. Do you have joy? You need joy. We need joy. Amen. Paul learned true joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Amen. Listen to what he says. Philippians 4, 4. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, except when you're in prison. No, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Remember, Paul is writing from prison when he's saying rejoice in the Lord always. So we can't say back to him, but you don't understand, Paul. You don't know what I'm going through. Can you give me an ice pack? Say that again, because I just got hit over the head for preaching Jesus. Well, say that to me again. How many of you know that didn't fly? How many of you know there was a lot of. There was a lot of weight in what Paul said here. Did Paul have opportunity to lose his joy? Oh, my God. This listen, second Corinthians eleven twenty three. This is Paul's. This is this is what he's been through. You, you think that's bad. Listen to what I've been through. Paul says, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder been put in prison more often, 
been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Five different times? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers, from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and the deserts and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Wow, Paul. Man. And in the context of what Paul has been through, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul learned to be joyful no matter what. Paul learned that despite your circumstances, you can have joy. Amen? Why? Because Paul also learned that the true source of joy is not in things or people or circumstances. The true joy is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice that he says in Philippians 4, 4, Paul said, rejoice, not in your circumstance, not in your bank account. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Paul discovered that the true source of joy is not in what you're going through or where you're at. The true source of joy is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes. So now he's trying to teach the Philippians. I've learned it. I want you to learn it. Jesus said in John 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. That my joy may remain in you. And that your joy may be full. Listen, true joy is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing that you can, you can only get from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The joy that God has for you, you're not going to buy it at a local pharmacy or at Walmart. You can only get it from your You're tapping in to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Listen, true joy. You don't have to lose it regardless of what you're going through. He says, listen, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may remain. How could, how could Paul, man, think about it. How could he have joy when he's been beaten three times with 39 lashes? Cat of nine tails, pieces of, of, of bone. Just, you know, imagine that. How can he have joy? Because listen, joy is not tied in to circumstances. Happiness is tied in to circumstances. Happen chances. But joy is not tied in to circumstances. It's tied in to Jesus Christ. Are y'all with me, church of family life? Amen. Are y'all hearing me? You might not need to hear this now, but you need to write some of this down or put these notes somewhere because you might need them tomorrow. 
Amen. Come on. Listen, the good news is no matter what you've been through or no matter what you're going through, you can have joy. Wow. Why is it so important for Paul to emphasize the joy of the Lord to the church of the Philippians? Because of the blessings, the blessings of the joy of the Lord. How many of you know it's a blessing to have the joy of the Lord? Amen. The joy of the Lord gives you strength. Nehemiah said, Nehemiah 8.10, don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Come on. Joy gives you strength. Sadness, depression, robs you of strength. If Paul can have it, my problems don't measure up to his. I should be able to get it. Are y'all with me? The joy of the Lord keeps you healthy. Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart. It's like good medicine. It's good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Come on, you want to be healthy, you need joy. Come on, all the salads and fruit in the world won't keep you healthy if you got a downcast, depressed, broken spirit. Amen. But put your hope in Jesus. And it'll keep you healthy. The joy of the Lord gives you an edge in life. Hebrews 1.9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Man, I like that verse. Come on, how many know joy will give you an edge on life? Come on, joy. Joy will give you an edge at work. Come on, let me talk to you today. Come on, joy. Listen, those of you that's single, joy will help you, help you get a relationship a lot quicker than a pouty face. Come on, let me help you. Let me talk to you that work. Listen, joy will help you get promotions more than a pouty face, a complaining face, a murmuring face. Come on, the joy of the Lord will give you an edge. And it comes from the anointing of God. The strength and grace of joy sets you above. Amen. Listen, the good news is you can experience tremendous benefits of having and living in the joy of the Lord. The bad news is you can lose the joy of the Lord. You can lose it. Paul emphasized the joy of the Lord because he knew that although they were Christian, they could lose the joy. You could be Christian and lose the joy. Paul asked the Galatians in Galatians 4.15, what has happened to all your joy? What has happened? Paul recognized and realized that even the strongest of believers can lose their joy. Isn't that true? King David lost his joy and he asked the Lord in Psalm 51, 12, give me back the joy of your salvation. Keep me strong by giving me a willing spirit. King David, a mighty man of God, had lost his joy, the joy of his salvation. And he's asking God, God, man, I lost my joy. Can you give it back to me? Have you lost your joy? The joy of your salvation? Have you allowed your circumstances to rob you of joy? Come on, I'm here to encourage you today that God wants you to have his joy. And it's not tied to what somebody in your family does, somebody at your work does. It's not tied to where you are right now. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. You know, I I prayed for a couple of people in the last week that were going into surgery. And they had this incredible peace about them getting ready to have surgery. 
And, and prior to getting there to that place at the time of surgery, they were having anxiety and they were fearful and all that. But somehow they were overwhelmed with peace. How does that come? It comes from the throne room of heaven. You can't figure it out. You can't scientifically prove it. You can't get wrap your, your, your natural brain around it because it's spiritually given by the throne room of God. And I'm telling you, joy is the same way. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And God can fill you with joy instantaneously. Amen. How many of you believe that this morning? Common joy stealers. Unconfessed sin. That was David's problem, remember? Psalm 51. That's why he lost his joy. Living an ungodly, unrepented life can cause you to lose your joy. Fear, being afraid of past circumstances, press, present situations, or future outcomes can steal your joy. Worry, the stress of anxiety of life can rob you. Heavy burdens, problems and circumstances, situations can rob you of joy. Amen? Legalism. Legalism. When Paul was talking to the Galatians, he said, man, you're getting back in all these rules and stuff. How did you get saved? Wasn't it by the Spirit or the law? It was by the Spirit. Why now are you trying to make people get circumcised to, to be a Christian and all that? And in the whole process of you getting so legalistic, you're losing your joy. The best news is that the joy of the Lord can be regained. That's the best news. Amen. Can I get a witness in the house of the Lord? Regardless of why you lost it, you can get it back again. Amen. Psalm 51 and 10 in the New American Standard. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Come on. How many of you want joy? How many of you like joy? Come on. How many of you glad you don't have to drink joy? Come on. How many of you glad you don't have to take joy? How many of you glad you can just receive joy? Come on. I'm going to say it till you get it. How many of you want joy? How many of you receiving joy? How many of you glad for joy? Come on. Stand up with me. And let's, come on, let's turn our hearts Towards the Lord. Come on, the joy of the Lord. There's nothing like the joy of the Lord. Come on, right now. Come on, some of you might be downcast. Come on, you might be a melancholy. Come on, you might be, you might have a, you might have a bent to be downcast, but come on, the Lord can change that. He can turn you around today. Come on, let that junk fall off of you today and let the joy of the Lord come upon you. Amen. Come on. Saints of God. It starts with salvation. The the psalmist said, restore the joy of your salvation. Come on. It's by the spirit. It's in the spirit. It's maintained through transparency. The psalmist said, created me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. How many of you want a right spirit today? Come on. I'm talking to you, man. I'm talking to you, uh, woman of God. Come on. The Lord wants to give you joy right now. Come on. He's wanting to take that old molly grub off of you today and give you a freshness today. Come on. He wants to take the garments of heaviness off of you and give you some garments of praise today. Thank you, Father. Lord, I thank you for the power of the word that you are manifesting your word today. I thank you that you 
you're releasing joy over the house of God today. In Jesus' name, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Come on, the joy of the Lord is my strength. How many of you believe that today? Come on, let's claim it. How many of you want more joy? Thank you, Father God. Lord, I want more joy. I want more joy. I want more joy. I want more joy. Listen, the more joy you have, it's kind of like, you know, a tank can run over a lot of stuff. A little tricycle can barely run over anything. The joy of the Lord will turn, trade, you trade in your tricycle for a tank. Amen. Come on, you'll be good barreling over your circumstances because of the joy of the Lord. Come on. Come on, let's ask God. Lord, I just, come on, how many of you today you would say, Todd, man, I've been struggling with this. This has been, this has been a struggle. That's you. Come on, just raise your hand. I want you to just quickly slip out of the pew. Just come to the front. Just come on. Come on, slip out. Come on, slip out. Slip out. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Why are you coming up here? The Lord... The Lord is saying to you, the circumstances that have been robbing your joy, you have no control over them. You can't change them. And you don't have to worry about them because he has control over them and he has the power to change them. And sometimes the reason why we lose our joy is because we get our eyes off of what our eyes need to be on. Amen. We're just totally looking at the winds of the waves. We're looking at our circumstances. See, Paul didn't write. He forgot about those stocks that he was in. He forgot about that dungeon he was in. He forgot about all that. Only thing you can think about is Jesus. Amen. Come on, just close your eyes. Those of you, close your eyes. I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus. Is Jesus big enough? Is he able to turn your circumstances around? Is he able? Come on, I'm talking to you. Is he able? Come on, answer in the affirmative if you believe that. If you believe that, answer it in the affirmative. Come on, you got to start. You got to begin. Come on, come out of that hole. Come on, come out of that hole. Answer in the affirmative. Yes, Lord, I believe you can. Yes, Lord, I believe you in control. Come on, preach to yourself a little bit. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe you can turn this around. Yes, Lord, I believe you can give me joy today. Yes, Lord, I believe I can go home with joy. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Lord. Father God, I pray right now for a release of joy. I'm going to ask the the pastors and their wives and just we're going to come lay hands on you and we're going to believe for joy to come upon you today come on pray with me before we go let's just pray this prayer with me say lord jesus i thank you for joy the joy of the lord is our strength lord i thank you that depression discouragement heaviness is broken in jesus name i declare that the joy of the Lord is mine. The joy of the Lord is mine. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father God, for the joy of the Lord. Now, come on, praise Him. Just praise Him. Give Him praise. Rejoice. 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 Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I said, rejoice.